Welcome to the Best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. I am here with Adam Ghazali. Adam, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, you are a neuroscientist with many diverse interests and several irons in the fire. Maybe you can summarize what you're doing now professionally. Sure. So I've had a sort of strange career, a fun, fun adventure. I'm, I'm trained as a MD and a PhD. My PhD is in neuroscience. I'm a, I'm a neurologist and I'm a professor at University of California, San Francisco, where I direct efforts at a research center that I started called Neuroscape. And what we do is look at the sort of interface between technologies and neuroscience and, and health. And then I also have started a couple of companies along the way, and uh, including a venture fund, all in the same general goal of trying to help improve the function of our brains and frequently through the use of technology. And you also wrote the book, The Distracted Mind, which covers a lot of ground that I think we're going to want to revisit here because... This is just such a fascinating moment where we're seeing the evidence all around us that our technology is its always a two-edged sword, but it just seems in the information space especially so at the moment. So I mean, obviously, we would not want to give up our connectivity and our, our access to the, the totality of human knowledge, which has been delivered by the internet and smartphones and the rest of what we've got here. But it's so clearly fragmenting our lives, and it seems rewiring our, our brains into just different expectations of reward, different habit patterns. I mean, we're all on a somewhere on a, a spectrum of pathology, and we know that there's no bright line between having a, a normal mind and a normal brain and having a condition like obsessive compulsive disorder or narcissism. I mean, it's just these are. We're talking about bell curves and, and gradients, not bright lines here. But it does feel like our our use of technology, you know, actively and and passively, is pushing us in odd directions. So I think we'll we'll get into this and then talk about how technology might also be a remedy for all that ails us here. Let's start with information. I mean, you, you point out in your book that we are information seeking creatures. How do you think about our relationship to information now? Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. You write a book and you try to make it timely, obviously. And as, as you know, books take a long time until mm. they eventually come out. And you're always in danger of it not being relevant anymore by the time it gets into people's hands. And um, if anything, I've seen it become more relevant, as you just referred to. And I think the, it really comes down to information. That's a great starting point. You know, we we take in information and that's what allows us to interact in this world. And we were evolutionarily sort of well-suited to do this. This is how we survive. We avoid threats and seek out nutrients and mates. And this is how the brain evolved to allow us to fluidly, dynamically interact with the world. And that advances our survival. And the brains that we have now are the product of that. And, uh, you know, they're quite, quite adept at dealing with complex information and helping us react both reflexively as well as through decision making. 
But what I, I think is clear now, probably to many listeners just through their own experience and certainly through data, that we don't have unlimited capacity to process information. And if the system is overloaded due to all sorts of types of interference that we can talk about, there will be consequences. And those consequences are really broad. And people see them, feel them in different ways, and they manifest in people's lives in quite complex manners. But that's sort of the, the crux of that story, that information is key to how we survive and thrive, but there's a breaking point and there's all sorts of consequences. Yeah, you use this phrase at various points in the book, uh, information foraging, drawing an analogy between you know, how animals will, will forage for food and there's a, you know, there, there, are, there are a few curves based on data in terms of just kind of the opportunity costs and the, the switching costs of exploiting an area for food and then deciding to, you know, based on instinct in the case of an animal to move to a new area looking for food. And we exhibit a similar pattern in the way we self-interrupt and attempt to multitask. You know, you're, you're, you're on the phone with someone and then you decide to check your email or your Slack channel in the middle of that call surreptitiously, not realizing that you're essentially losing 30 IQ points for the purposes of that conversation every time you do that. And we do this everywhere. I mean, there's this, maybe we can just talk about the limits of cognition here and the, the actual effects of multitasking. I mean, obviously multitasking is possible in certain cases because you know, people can listen to a podcast or listen to an audiobook and also successfully drive a car or or even do work that doesn't require the same kind of linguistic cognition. I mean you can you can draw, you could practice graphic design or something probably without any degradation in your skills, but for so many other tasks there is a, a zero sum contest between things that we attend to. So how do you think about multitasking? At this moment, what do we know about it scientifically? Yeah, so, you know, the term is confusing and complicates what's already a very complex landscape of, of the brain and behavior. And the reason why is because if you think about, you know, multitasking, just doing lots of tasks at the same time, it's something that we're all familiar with and we feel like we're really pretty good at. Um, and it's also most people feel sort of pleasure in multitasking, that it's something fun and more fun than single tasking. And mm. so, we're, we're constantly drawn to it, and it feels natural, and you sort of feel that you could get better at it. And the, the reason the term is complex, because it's a, from a behavioral point of view, sure, we multitask all the time. But what's implicit in it that creates the com confusion is that sometimes we use that term to mean like parallel processing, that you're, you're you know, from, you know, borrowing from the, the computer terminology and signal processing literature, that you're literally parallel processing these two tasks and that they're getting equal processing power. And so you're truly multitasking in that way. And when you look at the brain, we've done these studies in our, in our center at UCSF where we'll have someone in a scanner, we've done it with EEG, they have more than one demand on their attention. And we'll see that fragmentation occur, not just in their performance, which is quite obvious for pretty much anyone, but we'll see it even neurally, that 
there's really a switching between the networks that are involved in accomplishing either of those tasks independently, and that you can't really multitask in that true sense of, of parallel processing two things that are demanding your attention. Now, if you can offload it and it becomes reflexive and uh, becomes a skill that doesn't require attention, then you can do more than one thing. But the minute that changes, that's when the conflict and the interference occurs. So just to, you know, say, just to go back to your example of listening to a podcast and driving a car, sure, that could work. And it does work most of the time because driving is often very reflexive and you're pulling in a lot of bottom-up information from the environment, making reflexive decisions without your top-down attention. And so that allows you to focus your attention on listening to the podcast and digesting it and understanding it. But then something happens on the road and something unexpected and something that demands your attention. And that is the point of interference and conflict because now your attention has to move from the podcast back to the road. It may not get there fast enough. And, and then this is where you feel that, that weight and suffer the, you know, in this example, incredibly detrimental consequences of not being able to truly drive and listen to that podcast with all of your resources devoted to both of them equally. So I recommend that people pull over to the side of the road if they're in danger of missing our, our subsequent sentences here. You got to have your priorities straight. So used two phrases there that are terms of jargon in not just neuroscience, but cognitive science and engineering generally, bottom up and, and top down. Mm -hmm. How do you think about those? And, and there, it strikes me that there's a, a pretty clear asymmetry in terms of, of the bandwidth in those pathways. Yeah, let's break that down a bit. It's sort of core to this discussion about information processing and, and the brain, and those terms are used in a lot of different fields, and they're not so different in the context here in cognitive uh, neuroscience and cognitive science in that the way I think about it is from the perspective of, of attention. I think about most of these things from that perspective. I find it's, it's really useful. So attention is an incredibly broad concept and, and a complex one that would take us an hour to tease apart all the subtleties. But one way of thinking about it is in two categories. One is bottom-up attention, and the other is top-down attention. And bottom-up attention is when your limited resources, because we have those limitations, and both top-down and bottom-up have limitations, that our limited mental resources are being drawn or being activated by the environmental stimuli itself. So a loud sound, a flash of light, your name, something that's very important or salient to you is going to demand your attention and pull your resources towards it very rapidly. Um, and this is obviously a, a strong survival advantage. If you don't have great bottom-up, you're likely to get eaten pretty fast. And so that's bottom-up attention. So it's a very ancient part of our attentional system that was uh, really you know, critical for our survival on all animal survival. And then there's top-down attention. And by that, I mean the goal-directed attention. It's when you make a decision, a conscious decision based on interpreting information from either the external environment or your internal environment about where your attention is directed. And so you, you can be, you know, attending to something like this podcast right now, and you have every goal to absorb all this information, and your attention may get pulled away 
by a bottom-up force. And so we're constantly managing these two draws on our, our overall sort of capacity of where we put our resources, both the bottom up and the top down. And if you pay attention to it, you'll see it every day, all day, at every, every moment is that you know, these two attentional forces are constantly playing, playing a tug of war. And so how do you think about this experience we all have of self-interrupting? Uh, that may be a phrase you actually use in the book, I don't recall, but it, it's this experience that, you, you know, it's all too familiar. It's now practically unconscious all the time of you're paying attention to something, you know, you're, you're doing work at your computer, say, and then you decide to check your email. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the technology is playing a, a massive role here in terms mm-hmm. of notifications. I mean, if you're, if you're receiving texts or you're receiving notifications, well, then, then it's being driven by the machines themselves. But even without that, we just often experience this degradation in our ability to sustain attention for the task at hand, and we decide to probably reward is the right framework to think about mm-hmm. it. And we, we seek this dopamine hit by switching our attention to something else. And we're almost never very aware of the switching costs there and just how much time is lost reorienting to the thing you were doing when you do come back. What do we know about this whole process? Yeah, I mean, it was, you said it perfectly. We, we can be, our attention, our top-down attention, our goal-directed focus can be interfered with. That interference can, can occur on many levels. It can occur from external stimulation, so it's sort of the bottom-up things we're talking about. I would say if your phone vibrates in your pocket or you hear a ping on your computer, that's like a perfect example of a bottom-up source of attention. And technology companies certainly are aware of that, at least at some level, that you can pull attention with that. And so, you know, that's one that we're very aware of. But you, um, you could create interference internally, too. And so there may be internal distractions, internal bottom-up information, like an aching joint or your back just sort of nudges you or your stomach rumbles. And so those would be like almost like physiological bottom-up stimuli. They're coming from your own body, but they're knocking on, on your brain and saying, hey, uh, I, I need some attention over here. And then they could be much more complicated than that and occur not sort of in a bottom-up way, but th- just that you have now, um, for some reason, decided, um, and it could be subconscious or it could be conscious, to divert your attention from your original goal. And that may be to something external as well. So maybe I think that I could listen to this podcast and also bang out a quick email right now. Or it may be directed internally, right? So I'm going to listen to this, but also think about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. And so we're constantly fragmenting our limited, you know, attentional focus with both external and internal distractions and multiple tasks. And there's a cost for this. Like you said, whether that cost is something apparent to you or not, it is there. It has been well documented, both neurally and, and behaviorally. Yeah, so there's, a, there's obviously a cost in terms of the time lost in having to remind yourself where you were in the original task, right? I mean, and people don't really keep track of that well, but the, yeah, the, the, the research suggests that you do lose a lot of time every time you switch. 
Mm-hmm. But there's also, it seems to me there's a, a kind of emotional cost to all of this. And it's, it's somewhat paradoxical because I, I think the urge to multitask is often born of this, this internal sense of time poverty that many of us feel. And, and there's a kind of a feeling of urgency mm-hmm. that comes with just the sense that we don't have enough time to do everything we, we need to do or, or want mm-hmm. to do. And so, you know, hence it, it seems like a, you know, a brilliant idea to be doing two things or more at once. And we really want to feel that we can do that. And so I, I guess so there's, a, there's probably a reward component to it, but also just a, an anxiety component. And mm-hmm. one way to break this up is that there are these internal and external factors here. We have the, our internal states like boredom, anxiety, mm-hmm stress, you know, feeling of urgency, and this is you know, driving us in this direction. And then there are the, the, the external factors, which is just the technology itself that's designed to game us in a way. I mean, so, so many of these platforms that we engage, their, their entire business model is based on maximizing the, the capture of our attention. And, uh, you know, that's not new, but it's, it's really been weaponized to an unusual degree by our technology now. So maybe let's take the internal side of this first. What is this doing to our emotional lives, and, and how, do you, how do you see it as derivative of very common states of mind like anxiety and, and boredom? Yeah, I mean, you, you summarized it absolutely perfectly. That, that's how I, I think about it exactly, that there are two forces, an internal and an external force that drives us to shift our attention all the time, whether it's multitasking or just being distracted by, by external or internal stimuli. And, and, you know, just to tie this in with something we talked about a little bit of, of foraging, you know, in the, in the book, I, I really spent a lot of time developing this which really is a hypothesis that we're foraging for information in the way that other animals forage for food. And there's a, a theory that's used, um, um, actually, it's a mathematical approach to help understand and actually predict quantitatively of how long an animal will forage in a particular patch, like a squirrel in a tree, before moving to another one. And it could be actually predicted to really a high degree of accuracy. and they also have two forces that are driving them to make that decision. So there's a cost-benefit ratio going on of how long you stay in your patch versus how hard it is to get to another patch, right? So if you've depleted 50% of the nuts in the tree, but the next tree is really far away, you're just going to keep eating those nuts. But if the next tree is full and it's right there, 50% may be enough for you to jump over. And so that has been well described in how animals uh, that forage in patchy environments make sort of these internal decisions about remaining or leaving a patch. And you could think of information as a patch as well that we're foraging in, whether it's a website or an article that you're reading or any task that you're engaged in. And there are these internal and external forces that decide sort of the cost-benefit ratio of you staying there or just keep switching. And on the internal side, I think what's clear is that, you know, there is often a diminished return of remaining in a patch, sort of eating the nuts, right? Like you've read three quarters of the article, like you sort of have the idea already. So that, that's true. And that's just part of why people switch ever, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of unavoidable. 
But then there seems to be these other aspects that you talked about that are becoming quite clear now in that there's these forces that drive us out of a patch that are not related to the diminishing returns related to the information itself. They're related to these sort of internal drives that we're just intolerant to being bored. Boredom feels just something that we cannot just sit with and allow to wash over us, even though it doesn't actually hurt us. And then there's also that anxiety that you're missing out on something else, that FOMO, that there's something going on that's deserving of your time that you're missing. And then there's also the anxiety that you're not being maximally productive, that you have the capacity to get another thing done simultaneously. And so as those elements accumulate over time, along with your diminished return that you're getting from the patch you're in, there's a driving force to push you out. And in the if that next tree is really close, if it's really just a tab in your browser or your phone sitting in your pocket, then there is no resistance to switching and you just keep mm. moving. Yeah, well, the next tree, informationally speaking, is always just right there. You know, I mean, there's yep. just, it's, it's a tab away and, yep. and there are an infinite number of trees now. I mean, this is, so in, in one sense, boredom has almost been driven into extinction by technology because, what, you know, there's just, again, we have perpetual access to the totality of the world's information. And I still remember what it was like to walk into a blockbuster video looking for a movie to watch and spending <laughs> some intolerable amount of time roaming the aisles there looking for a, a film I hadn't seen or w wanted to see again. And I remember how inefficient that was and how prone to failure it was. I mean, it got to a point where there was no guarantee I was going to come out of a video store with something <laughs> to watch, right? Yep, I remember it, that. Yeah, I mean, this, this never happened in a bookstore. I mean, it, it, there was still a functionally infinite number of books I wanted to read. But with film, I really felt like we were kind of coming up against the limitations of supply there. And yet now we have access to so much information and, and entertainment, and it's becoming so frictionless. I mean, we most of us are still juggling too many apps and, and too many sources, but insofar as this gets consolidated in places like Netflix, you know, it's just like boredom has almost been banished on one level, except on another level, it appears to be growing in the sense that it feels like our our reward cycles in our engagement with media are getting shorter and there's zero downtime between them. I mean, literally the, the next episode begins to autoplay on most of these platforms, right? And you have mm -hmm. to opt out of watching it rather than decide what you want to watch next. So it's just, we're now part of this binge watching machine and it's not just watching, I mean, binge reading, binge scrolling of social media mm -hmm. and the frictions out of the system our expectation of reward is coming in, it feels to me, much shorter increments of time. And I would, I would expect that our attention span, which is to say our, our tolerance for boredom or just the uncertainty of what, what our attention is going to land on in a satisfying way, is growing shorter. So on one level, I feel like boredom is almost gone. But on another level, I feel like we are being tuned to be less and less resilient to boredom than we've ever been. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And it's it's sort of a, a fun area of some harmless self-experimentation. 
you know, you ha- you have these moments that throughout the day where you're forced to stop doing things. Like one that I love is just, you know, although things are shifting now, but because people order in, but like when you're waiting online at a grocery store and you're, you sort of have only two people in front of you, it's not really going to take that long. You could just pause there and think about things or just relax your mind. But I mean, I feel it just like, think like most people do this, this drive to just reach into your pocket and with no actual intention of necessarily or need to look something up, but just to let that information flow start again, Mm. even at a light, you know, at a traffic light, you know, you know, it's only going to be 30 seconds. And this is part of the danger that, you know, that you can feel if you just allow a little bit of introspection and time to occur on those natural pauses in our life, you can feel that onset of boredom. And, um, you know, it's something that there is, like you said, just a very, very low tolerance for. And I would, I would um, challenge people to get familiar with that feeling of boredom, not to be afraid of it, to realize that it's not going to hurt you. And, you know, it's sort of like a little hunger is not necessarily the worst thing at times as well. You don't need to eat every second when you get these stimuli. So being in control and being aware of, your, of these internal states is really critical. And so I think with the intolerance of boredom, there's a lack of um, appreciation or recognition of it as well. So what do you recommend people do? What sort of bright lines do you, you think they should, should look for in their, their lives? And whether we think about this in terms of habit patterns or yeah. discipline or engaging with technology differently or different technologies, I mean, I, I think we want to talk about some of the work you're doing in, in digital medicine mm-hmm. at the end. But w- yeah. what do you recommend people do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, this is, is such a great question. It, it was sort of a, an interesting point in my life as, as a scientist, um, and I, I know you have neuroscience roots as well, when I started getting asked that question, because I don't like fancy myself as like a self-help <laughs> type of person, but I, but I understood the need for it. You know, I've been studying distraction and multitasking from a neuroscientist perspective. And when it came to writing a book on the topic that I wanted to be more than a neuroscience primer on on this, it was a very real question that I had to ask myself, you know, how do I answer that? And so how I really went about it was just describe to people what I do. So I, you know, this is, you know, my own desire to live a focused life of meaning and how do I get there knowing all of this information that I've found in my own research? What are the things that I do? And so that's sort of the route that I went ab- about this. And also the grounding in the marginal value theorem, the forage, optimal foraging models that we talk about gave a lot of those clues because once you see the pressures that make us switch all the time, so that's sort of what I used as a foundation to f- give advice to both myself and anyone else. Once you understand, the pressures that drive this behavior, then you sort of have the framework for reversing that and creating new habits. So as we already described, there's both external and internal pressures. On the external side, because that one's a little easier, is just the accessibility. There's no doubt that the accessibility is driving a lot of this behavior because that tree is so close. So some of the things, and some people do this and go to extreme measures to do this is start limiting some accessibility just to make it a little easier. So, 
you know, if you can't not look at your phone when you're at a traffic light, maybe you should put the phone in the trunk of your car. <laughs> maybe you should not work with all your browsers open or if you're really writing an article that has a time pressure on it, maybe not keep, you know, Twitter or Slack open at the same time. And so limiting accessibility is just a really simple way to start decreasing that switching tendency. A little more complicated is on the internal side. How do you monitor and, and, and manage the anxiety and the boredom and the desire for high, higher degrees of productivity that are driving you from that side of the equation? And for there, what I experimented with, with myself was just practicing, like many things in life, uh, they don't come necessarily without effort, practicing the art of sustained attention and single tasking. And I started doing this, you know, a couple of years ago as a, you know, sort of now speaking about the book and that content publicly and just saying, okay, I'm going to challenge myself. I have an hour that I'm going to quit everything except this one source of my attention, this one focus. And when I started doing that at the beginning, it was really hard. It was shockingly hard mm -hmm. because I felt this desire to like, just go and check Facebook or just go and talk to someone, even if it wasn't technology. And, and so what I started doing and what I advise people based on my own experience is start with small periods of time that you're doing singular focus and feel what happens, understand the boredom and the anxiety, work through it and stick with it. And then take that break, make that break not about necessarily going on social media or getting into these iterative like sinkholes to just take you away from your goals but rather stretch, do some light exercise, close your eyes, meditate, look at nature, either through photography or real nature. These things I think have a lot of support for being really healthy little breaks and then get back into that focus and see if you can extend that over time. I think it's sort of similar to someone learning how to become like a long distance runner. Like you can't really just start by running four miles. And what's intolerable to you on day one, because it's painful or maybe even boring, after a while, you start enjoying that feeling. And, and I think it, I've discovered it's like that with this as well. You could single task sort of like an endurance runner where after a while, it's just effortless and even fun to do that. And so I think it's a process of baby stepping into longer periods of time of building the skill sets that allow you to sustain your attention without derailing yourself. I think this notion of single tasking is really important. And, and the fact that we even have a, a name for it is a sign of how far we've <laughs> wandered from, from, from what used to be normal. <laughs> and when I think about how much harder it's getting to read a book, mm -hmm. and if that's happening to me, I mean, I'm kind of a canary in the coal mine for this because, you know, I, I really, I read a lot. I, you know, books have always been a major part of my life. I read both professionally and for, for pleasure, but even I am finding it harder to, to finish books. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. uh, one, you know, the competition for my attention is, is just, it's always at a, a fever pitch. So I, you know, it gets diverted into to other streams of information, but I'm also finding it harder to just just to commit to, you know, sitting down for an hour and doing nothing but reading mm -hmm. the book, right? And mm -hmm. that it makes me realize that I'm almost unrecognizable 
to myself. Mm-hmm. The Sam Harris of, of 20 years ago would not have been able to imagine mm. finding reading a book for an hour at all difficult. I mean, that, there was kind of a, a, a basin of attraction there for me, which was, I mean, once I, once I was in it, you know, I, I was in it. It's like forecasting that at some point you're going to find it difficult to eat ice cream, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that <laughs> makes no sense at all. It's, uh, it's something I consciously correct for. And as you know, I spend a lot of time focusing on explicitly the, the topic of, of meditation mm-hmm. and the importance of, of training attention in that way. Being able to pay attention is one thing, but having an internal sense that there are many things that merit your attention right now, and the best way to, to play this game is to essentially have many browser windows always open. It's a kind of decision that, that once you make it, you're, you're then forced to function in that fairly doomed paradigm of mm-hmm. just splitting attention. So mm-hmm. I do think there's a lot to be said for just making a decision mm-hmm. around certain things like this. And, and so having a, a, the concept of, of single tasking is a kind of hack for what you're going to tend to do by default just because of what's happening at your desk and coming from the smartphone in your pocket. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I like the way you said that. It's um, it's it's really more than one factor here that that leads to success in the way out of this. One of them is the actual cognitive skill set of being able to sustain attention, and I think that that even if you want to, and and meditation is a great way to build that that ability. I mean, you know, meditation, many forms of concentrated meditation are essentially that. They're attention training practices in in many ways. And so that's part of it. And then you have to make the decision to actually apply it in a consistent fashion. And that comes along with controlling your environment to put you in the best possible setting to accomplish it. And then there is, you know, with all of that comes the forming of new habits so that it's not a constant control effort to do that, that it, that it is your reflex. Your reflex is to engage in the world in this way. And I, I think that with all those factors, it's possible to see your way through, but it comes with recognition of what the cost of this type of style of interaction with technology and your environment in general is that allows, gives you the motivation to take all these steps to just live differently. So how can technology help? I mean, you have this phrase, I've heard you use digital medicine, which is part of what you're exploring as a tech entrepreneur and a scientist. You know, what is digital medicine and and what else do you see on the horizon in terms of new technology that can help us? Yeah, well, thanks for for the opportunity to talk about both sides of this coin, because normally, like in very short formats, I'll do like an NPR interview and I'll have five minutes. And it's, it's, it's a nuanced discussion because here I am, the author of a book called The Distracted Mind. We just have been talking for you know 40 minutes um, about all of the challenges of our ability to maintain attention and how technology has aggravated that. And what I spend most of my time working on on the academic and on the industry side is using technology as a way of improving attention. And so it is complex, you know, on the surface. So I appreciate the opportunity to dive in a little bit. I think it's not dissimilar from 
you know, most other things in nature is that there's a yin yang, right? There's always this push and pull and any sword can cut both ways, a term that you used already. And that's true of technology. Um, and I, I sort of dove in deep into that pool of, okay, technology has aggravated our, our already fragmented attention in, in a lot of the ways that we've been talking about. Starting with that as a foundation, can we reimagine it as a tool to actually do the reverse, to help our attention? And that is a goal that was born out of just practicality that I don't believe we'll put in this genie back in the bottle. I mean, it is here, mm. it is powerful, and it has a lot of really amazing assets. It's all over the world, right? So it has this incredible ability, not just to connect, but to reach people that don't have access to many things like doctors and teachers. So it has all of these incredible strengths that really appealed to me. And so I dove into, you know, now it's been 12 years since I, I challenged myself at thinking about technology as a source of good, not just in general in some wishy-washy way, but actually as a tool to help fine-tune attention abilities. That was my original goal. And starting 12 years ago, I came up with, you know, sort of this idea. I use the term digital medicine a lot. I think more frequently I use a term experiential medicine to encapsulate something a little larger, digital medicine being an example of that, or one of, of you know, many types of experiential medicines. But the, the general idea behind digital medicine and the bigger category of experiential medicine is that our, our brains have this phenomena of plasticity, its ability to modify itself at every level in response to challenge and experience. And this is the, the basis of learning. It, it exists um, throughout our lives. It doesn't just end after you become an adult and certainly not through older ages as we now appreciate. And so the general concept is if we can challenge the brain in a targeted way and align the mechanics of whatever that interaction is and the reward systems appropriately, we should be able to optimize these neural systems, whatever they may be. And it's a very ancient practice. Um, meditation, mindfulness, which you know I know is a big part of your world, is, I would say, a perfect example of an experiential medicine. And it could be delivered through a human expert, or it could be delivered digitally, in which case I would say that's a, a digital medicine. So that's sort of you know the high-level path that I've been on now for over a decade, both in research and in sort of product creation and entrepreneurship, is to think about how we build technologies that create interactions that help us improve the function of our brains. Yeah, I, I want to um, reiterate that point you just made, which is often made, but I feel like it doesn't really land for people, or at least it, it can be, um, one, it's counterintuitive, and, and two, it, it's often hyped in a way that, that is misleading. So that this notion that what you do with your brain winds up physically changing your mm. brain based on neuroplasticity. You know, this is a fascinating fact about us that the machinery that is producing our experience and cognition changes itself based on how it's used. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, that's, that's the key to all learning and everything else about us that leaves a trace, right? So if, if someone's mm -hmm. going to remember anything about this conversation, they'll remember it based on actual physical changes in their brains. That's what mm -hmm. 
the encoding of memory requires. Mm -hmm. And yet it's often said that people kind of marvel at the claim that, that there's evidence, scientific evidence, that something like meditation practice can physically change the brain, right? Or the functional behavior of the brain under neuroimaging. But of course it does, right? Literally everything you do changes your brain. Yep. So on some level, it is a kind of a hype claim that one hears in the meditation literature to emphasize this point because everything changes your brain. Mm -hmm. But because we have this general property of plasticity, we really should view the consequences of paying attention to specific things in specific ways as being fairly indelible until we do something else that changes us in, in some other way, right? So on some level, mm -hmm. you, you get more of what you pay attention to. It's almost like mm -hmm. the algorithms that are successfully gaming our attention. We, we, we know that if you're on YouTube and you keep clicking on videos of cats or Olympic sprinter finals or what, whatever it is, whatever you get into, you get more of the same. And on some level, you, th that same kind of algorithmic property is true of us. I mean, you, you're making yourself based on what you're doing with your attention and the kinds of habits you're ramifying. And you are quite literally sculpting your neural circuitry mm -hmm. in the meantime. And I mean, we, everyone experiences this in, in miniature psychologically, but that it's another thing to, to remind yourself that there's a physical basis for this, a kind of you know, living sculpture that is producing this. This is something that we've been doing inadvertently more or less every moment of our lives, and mm -hmm. now we have the most well-resourced and technologically competent companies that have ever existed turning their, <laughs> their tractor beams on us and demanding our attention from every screen in sight. And what you don't take responsibility for here is going to happen to you based on other people's business models. And it's, um, it's just worth realizing that the causality here is, is not really in dispute. Mm -hmm. Basically, all of these moments matter, and they, they deliver to you your future self who will have whatever competencies or, or weaknesses or you know, mounting dissatisfaction with, with life to deal with. And if your life doesn't feel the way you want it to feel, there's a lot you have done on purpose and by accident to bring yourself to this point, and there's a lot you may yet do to feel differently. Yeah, I mean, that was beautifully said. I think that that is really true. It's, it's sort of something that's overhyped and used sometimes even as a marketing tool, and yet underappreciated for its true profound power of change that, it, that experiences can, can induce. One way that, you know, the reason I use, I put the word medicine in there, although it doesn't have to necessarily be for people that are sick, it has much broader implications, is that when it comes to the, the brain and the mind, we've just become, from my perspective as a neurologist and even, even in, in neuroscience, we've become preoccupied with this idea that medicine for the mind is, is a pill right? That somewhere out there, there's this magic brain pill that we're going to discover and autism is gone and depression's gone and, you know, Alzheimer's, everything is just could be fixed. And because of that, in my, from my perspective of someone that, you know, sat through med school classes, it's been a while ago, but I know it's not different now, thinking that medicine equals drug, everything else 
has become marginalized as an alternative approach, which is really a disservice. Um, and so even though, like you said, we, we know so much about the underlying you know, mechanisms and neuroscience of plasticity, just as much as we know about neurochemistry related to molecular treatments and pills, it is not given the same sort of real respect in, in medicine as a tool to really lead to these therapeutic approaches. And so that's really the shift that happened in me over the last decade when I started realizing that this experiential medicine that we've relied on, it's in some ways the most ancient medicines we've had for our, our minds, whether they're suffering or not, to just even elevate them, has not been part of our of our real translational approach to bringing neuroscience tools to people's lives to help them that we've just we've just built this silo around having this miracle pill cuz it's easy and you know has all the reasons that make it appealing and so once i've like really internalized that thinking about how digital technologies can be used to create these powerful even transformative experiences that can have these benefits in our mind, this has become something that I'm like, oh, this is what, this is what I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. this, this, is, this is my path now, because it has that strong foundation in neuroscience. Like No neuroscientist, you know, the devil's in the details, of course, but no neuroscience de really debates the premise of neuroplasticity or the value of it. And so it has that basis, but it's the translation that has gotten lost and over-marketed in some ways. And so that is, is what I think the, the, the opportunity here, and, and that's what I spend my time on. Yeah. So, so what technology have you been working on? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the sort of at the core of it, what really began it all for me, uh, began this mission now, it was really thinking about what type of interactive experiences could be targeted to different neural systems in a way that people would actually engage in deeply and consistently. And from that sort of premise, I arrived at the idea of a video game. And, you know, video game as sort of the delivery system of an experience, an engaging, fun one that would absorb you, even though your mind is telling you to multitask, and hold you in there for enough time to allow the plasticities mechanisms to engage, right? Because we have this plasticity, but we also have this homeostasis, this ability to remain stable, that they, they sort of battle each other. And so you have to apply pressure to the system, not just in a targeted selective way, which can be accomplished through the mechanics of the game or interaction, but also in a deep way. And you need to do it multiple times in multiple days um, in order to induce any type of meaningful change. And so I've been building video games, um, sort of a weird twist for an MD-PhD, you know, after 30 years in neuroscience to start becoming a game developer, but that's sort of what happened. And so both in Neuroscape as well as companies, I form like Achille Interactive, we are inspired by understanding some cognitive neuroscience and developmental neuroscience about what type of interactions may activate neural networks in a, in a selective way that, that underlie usually attentional systems? And then how can we target it in such a way to, to basically harness the brain's own inherent plasticity? 
And the way I've latched onto that is what I call closed loop systems or closed loop video games. We had you know, several reviews, including one in, in Neuron, um, not so long ago, describing this concept of a closed loop video game. And, and the very basic premise is that all the aspects of the game, the challenge and the rewards are being driven based upon your own data, your state data. And on the surface, the easiest, most accessible is your performance data. But more recently, we're trying to also capture in real time things like your stress, your attention, your arousal level, your awareness even. And if this data can be captured, then it can be put, fed into an algorithm that understands you in a way that you might not understand yourself and no human being may be capable of in the moment, such that you could be rewarded and challenged in an appropriate way to then drive these systems to improve themselves. And so that's the, the underlying principle that I've been pursuing is development of closed loop systems um, that can then be delivered to people through all the accessible devices that we have as a way of improving attention, mood, other aspects of cognition. Is there a, um, an, an EEG neurofeedback component to this, or is that not part of the data stream you're, you're integrating? Sometimes there is. So in our first pass, we just use performance data because it's the most accessible, right? You could record it with a sensor on a tablet or a phone, a mm. tap or an accelerometer. So, you know, my, my first goal was to make this um, not just an intellectual exercise and another paper in my CV, but an actual thing that got into people's lives and helped them. I, I always say I'm on the third stage of my neuroscience career. My PhD was molecular neuroscience, and then my postdoc and my early faculty days was cognitive neuroscience. And now I think of myself as a translational neuroscientist. So my goal is to really not just understand the brain, but to build tools to get into people's lives as rapidly as possible. And while there's a lot to do with neural recordings, and I'll give you a little bit more of where we're going with that now, the first pass was just to use performance data, like response time and accuracy and things that are just so accessible. And our first game that I created, um, NeuroRacer at, at UCSF, we published uh, in 2013 in, in Nature, um, which was such an exciting moment. As you know, you're, you're in neuroscience. Um, get, having the cover of Nature for a research study is sort of like, feels like a pinnacle. To us, it yeah. really was just the beginning. But what we were able to do there was to show that we can improve attention and, and working memory abilities in older adults through a closed-loop video game. And that, that game just used performance data. And that game has gone on now. We could talk about where, where that has taken us. But what we're studying now at Neuroscape is how do we record essentially everything that we have access to? So this is a, a multidisciplinary approach involving engineers that have expertise in biosensor technology, signal processing, machine learning, neuroscience. How much information can we capture about an individual? So from EEG and electrodermal activity and heart rate and respiratory rate and facial expressions and other types of EMG recordings to really understand in real time the state of, that they're in so that then this data can be fed into this feedback loop to create these challenges. So, you know, that's sort of our latest is to, is to push into the future using that multimodal biosensing approach. One concern here is the question of whether whatever gains a person makes in, you know, training attention, say, in a game, actually generalize. Mm -hmm. 
do you just get better at the game or do you get better at attending to anything you want to attend to? What, what, what does your research show there? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the million dollar question, right? That's that's the core of everything is is that transfer, that ability to have benefits beyond, you know, the whatever you're you're training or engaged in or whatever the treatment is. And all of our papers show some degree of transfer. I they wouldn't we probably wouldn't even be able to publish them anymore if they didn't have a little bit of that. And so the real question is how far is that transfer? How how removed from the environmental interactive stimulation that you got that led to the plastic effects to the benefits that you see. So in most of our studies, we're doing testing before and after, let's say a month or six weeks of, of an intervention, a video game intervention, and then looking at how that ability to attend in the, in the game, whatever that game may be, then allows you to do better on very, very different tasks. And we see that all the time. It was in our nature paper. We had two papers in the last year on a meditation-based video game called Metatrain, which showed... So this is, like I think, a really good example of transfer, right? So the game, uh, we, we designed this and developed this with a, a colleague of and a friend of mine, Jack Cornfield, who's you know an yeah. absolute gem yeah. in, in so many ways. And what we showed in, in two published papers, one in Healthy Young Adults and the other was in adolescence with adverse life events and attention deficits, actually in, in India, uh, those children, those adolescents. And what we showed in both of them is that they're playing a closed loop video game that's based on the principles of meditation, but has the adaptivity and the reward systems of our other closed loop approaches. And what we show is that even a month of engagement leads to an improved ability to rapidly do these challenging perceptual decision tasks and, and attentional tasks incredibly different from the gameplay itself, which was all eyes closed, focused attention on the breath. So that's really exciting degree of transfer because it's a really different deployment of those attentional skills. And then we have unpublished data that, that I'll share with you on older adults, where we again show this improvement in high-speed visual attention from this internally directed attention exercise through Metatrain. So that's replicated now in three populations. But we also showed improvements in stress reactivity um, using electrodermal activity. This is as a pre-post measure. And these are all placebo-controlled tr blinded trials as well. And now some of our earliest evidence is showing even telomere length can, can change from this one-month practice. So that's really far transfer as far as I'm concerned. And so I would say we're not there yet, but slowly but surely, we're learning how we can take these technology-delivered experiential treatments in medicine and lead to father and father transfer. What would you attribute telomere change to, just a reduction in stress, or what would be the mechanism? I think so. I mean, this is really new data, unpublished, super exciting. It's, you know, we, we work with Liz Blackburn's lab and Alyssa Pell and others at UCSF that have expertise with these measures. So this was a stretch out of our normal outcome measures. But that's one of the things that we're trying to do is to reach beyond cognitive outcome measures into other things like sleep and stress and blood-based inflammatory markers, for example. And so I think, you know, if I had to guess based upon the existing literature, it would be stress-related. And so it, we're now looking at the relationships 
between many of these outcome measures that have changed. So we have MRI recordings, functional and structural. We have EG. We have the stress electrodermal activity outcomes. And now we have this telomere finding and trying to put them all together, um, which is really a lot of data from one study and trying to understand what, you know, what are sort of the causal elements is not very easy, but that's sort of what, what we're trying to figure out now. So what's the state of accessibility of this technology now? Is it, are we at the point where everything you described is commercially available or is, is, is most of this still a matter of just research? Yeah. So most of it is still, I would say, in the lab. <laughs> the MetaTrain game that I just described, even though we're writing our third paper now, is still accessible really only through research and research colleagues and collaboration. But we hope to change that. And we have another almost dozen games. Some of them take place, use virtual reality. Others use full body motion capture. Rhythm and physical fitness are all parts of, of many of our games. So most of those are in the lab. The one game that is now accessible and not completely accessible, I'll describe that, is that first game was called NeuroRacer, the game that, be, that grew into our nature paper and became the premise, the technology that launched my first company in this domain, Achille Interactive. So uh, UCSF owns the sort of technology, the patent behind that, since I, I'm a professor at, at UCSF. I am the inventor, and Achille has a license to it. That's sort of our relationship of how I'm learning how you get ideas and discoveries outside of the lab in, into the world. And Achille spent a decade developing a way better game from the point of view of art, music, story, reward cycles from NeuroRacer, but preserve the underlying mechanics and closed loop features that was, was in NeuroRacer. And then that game has now gone through, I think, almost 30 trials. Now I work on other games and let my other colleagues take these through, you know, these, these late, later stages clinical trials. But what, what has happened now, we've completed some really exciting research, including a phase three trial. So for, for those of you listening that don't know, that's sort of the last phase of the FDA process by which a therapeutic, whether it's a device or a drug, goes on to become cleared as, as a medical device or drug. And so that phase three trial was led out of Duke by a, a, a scientist named Scott Collins. And Really a unique study. It was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-site trial using a video game to improve attention in children diagnosed uh, with ADHD, attention de deficit disorder, really focusing on the ADD part more than the hyperactivity. And it was successful in showing improvements in sustained measures of attention and some functional measures of, of, of attentional deficits that these children were suffering from. And we submitted that to the FDA. Uh, a couple years ago now is a long process, and that is now approved as a medical device, a class two medical device to treat inattention in children with ADHD. Mm. Uh, it's the the first non drug digital treatment for ADHD, and the first video game that has been cleared by the FDA for any medical condition. So it's it's pretty exciting. It's been twelve years since that first idea struck me of of creating that video game Neuroracer. So and this just happened a couple months ago. It happened during COVID, so it's a little bit of a of a of a happy moment here in an otherwise very complicated time. 
And we are now moving through the not trivial process of delivering a video game as a medicine, requiring a prescription to get it out there as a treatment for inattention and ADHD. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So now, why would it why would a prescription be required if it is at bottom just a video game? I mean, doesn't that requirement presuppose that there's contraindications to whatever the the medicine is, and and, and why would that be the case in a game? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to our discussion about the power of plasticity. Any experience that has the ability to create positive change can also create negative change. I mean. We know experiences cause PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. They're, they don't have a directionality in, them, in, in themselves, right? It's only how they're designed. And so we think it's appropriately responsible that if you're going to create a tool through an interactive experience, um, in this case, a video game, that we are going to try to document through research has benefits that uh, warrant it to be delivered as a as a medicine as a therapeutic you know it's responsible to look for potential side effects as well mm. and so going through the FDA pathway and treat and, and getting this cleared as a as a medical device which is what software falls under allows us to bring all the rigor of experimental design looking for potential negative effects documenting the positive effects the the limitations of them that that the medical regulatory system has to offer. So that was, you know, a lot of the motivation to be able to bring that type of experimental approach to this. It also to me is important for doctors to think about things other than drugs as medicine. And I want this I think it should be taken seriously and treated in every other way, especially when prescribed for a clinical condition as a medicine. And so part of going through this pathway was to bring that whole machinery to accomplish that goal. So, you know, it's not just FDA approval, but this paradigm shift that has to occur for a doctor to reach for their, you know, digital prescription pad mm. and write this as a treatment for their patient. And then hopefully in the not distant future, insurance companies to reimburse it the same way they would a drug. And so all of those pieces have to happen if we're going to shift the whole notion of what medicine is, which is my ultimate goal. It's funny. It strikes me that you're, you may be applying the placebo effect to doctors. <laughs> the effect of writing a prescription is reframing all of their expectations around this intervention. You brought the placebo effect out to a, a meta level. Yes. To the... I think it's probably true. So what, what do you see as the future of other technological interventions here. I mean, you know, what we're talking about here are still ways in which people can use their, their attention to change their brain. But as you know, technology is, at least on the horizon, is seeming to promise an even more intrusive integration with the brain in, in terms of you know, mm -hmm. brain-machine interface. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk has mm -hmm. the, the company Neuralink. I don't know if you've, you've followed what they're mm -hmm. yep. doing there. What do you think about the future of directly intruding into the brain? And just under what circumstances do you think people will do that? I mean, you know, obviously, Elon is betting that ultimately the benefits of doing this will be so unignorable that um, people will, will do it electively. It'll, it'll mm -hmm. be made non-chaotic enough 
and non-scary enough that people will, will literally volunteer to have holes drilled in their heads so that they can have machinery placed mm -hmm. in there because to not do that will be to have decided to be cast out of a, a growing information universe uh, that, you know, with um, attendant superpowers and no one would mm -hmm. do that if given the opportunity. So what, what, what do you envision mm -hmm. in the future, however far? Well, I'd like to preface my comments by saying I'm super excited what Elon's doing and, and others that are engaged in, in this. It's, it's, it's exciting. It's, it should be a part of our research and our future. I have a little bit of a different view on the, on the timeline of this, maybe, mm. and, and the applicability and the scalability, which is why I don't do it, to tell you the truth. I've become an incredibly practically-minded neuroscientist. Like I want to do things to have benefit in very short periods of time to as many people as possible. Mm. And so I'm glad people are doing that work, and many of my colleagues are, both in industry and academics, and I applaud them. But I really think that the implantable world is going to be largely for pretty extreme circumstances where there are no other tools and you know just intractable problems and it will do hopefully a lot of good but it's going to take a really long time and it's going to have a lot of limitations now i hope i hope i get proven wrong you know i just want i want to see us use technologies whether they're invasive or non-invasive to do good so uh, and I'm more than happy to work with those folks because I don't think that it's going to be accomplished through the implanted, implanting of electrodes alone. I think that the only way we have ever activated brain networks, complex brain networks selectively, is through experience. We've mm. never done it through a drug or electrical stimulation. It's just, this is how our brains are constructed. We, we, we don't know how to do it any other way. So I, I think that the future will probably involve some integration of both when that field advances enough, both invasive and non-invasive, that you would still need to engage in targeted experiences with complex you know, and appropriate reward systems in order to get the maximal benefit of whatever that technology becomes. So I rather think that it's all part of an ecosystem. And I think the same thing is true of drugs. People, like if I don't have enough time to talk like we have been, they would take messages away that I'm anti-molecular treatments, anti-drug use as a, as a therapeutic modality, which is not true at all. I just think it's, it's limited and we shouldn't put a silo around it. But I think that we'll get much more benefits out of, out of molecular treatments, out of pills, if we couple them with experiential treatments. And I think we'll get much hmm. more benefit out of invasive neurotechnologies if we couple them with experiential treatments as well. So I think that, you know, we, we just, it's so, it just seems to be this innate tendency of humans to put silos around every single thing. And we've done such a disservice by doing that with drugs for so long and, and pills. And I'd hate to see that happen in the technology side of this. So long story short, I, I think it's going to take a while. I think that there's a future for it. And I don't, I think that it'll be integrated with the type of tools that we're developing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of it as ultimately not being separable from many of the processes we've already spoken about. I mean, it's just it's something that w you would still need to train for and in uh very likely uh rather yeah. than just having your 
hard drive rewritten by the technology. Yeah, the the I, the magic pill, a magic device. It's just I don't think that it's going to happen. I think the brain is just way too complex for that, and it's a you know it's a human tendency to seek those out. But there's going to be work involved, I believe, and we have to make it as fun as possible. <laughs> but mm. but it's it's going to take it takes effort to change the brain, and I don't think we're going to short circuit that in any any reasonable time. And I don't, I don't necessarily know if we even should. Like I, there's something that comes with a sense of ownership of healing yourself and, and doing that work as part of the treatment, I believe. So yeah, I think that it, it will be part of the, you know, the bigger offering that we'll have. I'm struck by the significance of the conceptual framing applied to what we've been talking about. So I mean, to think in terms of a treatment is one thing, and it, it sort of medicalizes it, you know, for good and for ill. But you, one could also swap in the notion of training, mm -hmm. uh, you know, more along a kind of a, a fitness model there, and that gives it a kind of a different flavor to what is in in fact the same thing. I mean, just engaging these principles of plasticity and the change of function based on prior moments of function. And I mean, I just would point out that. Each one of us is the world champion at being more or less who we were yesterday in terms of training. I mean, you've been training to be yourself and to have your habitual reactions to the things you react to, you know, on every previous hour of your life. And so when you, whatever it is, react impatiently to your children or uh, reach for that thing that you you know really like to eat or whatever whatever it is that is is a habit pattern that you recognize in yourself i mean that's something that has been ingrained i mean some obviously some of it is heavily governed by genes right so it's not all environment but you know genes in concert with what you have done in your life and how you've responded to the environment you you are the olympic champion of being recognizable to yourself and staying in whatever rut you may feel you're in. And it's not an accident that it would take some effort and some process of, of reprioritizing your interests and values and what you're granting attention to, to make any kind of significant changes. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that you went there with this conversation because I wouldn't want the message to be that this is just medicine for people that are sick or suffering in some way. It was certainly the very targeted approach I took to our first video game treatment, you know, because there's so much need and you have to focus somewhere and, and, and accomplish, you know, a very defined goal. Anyone that's ever started a company or started anything knows, but that's not the ultimate goal here. These tools can, you know, and, and our data supports this and we're showing that more and more that you don't have to be suffering or in in a you know a very pathological condition to get benefit from experiential treatments and that is the the bigger offering mm. how do we uh, evolve our minds in a sense and and really enhance ourselves and you know i just feel that this is so important it always has been but right now when you read the news and look at the world around us 
beyond all the mental health suffering, both neurological and psychiatric, that's going on, it seems that humanity is in need of some major solutions right across the board for our minds. I wrote a piece not so long ago called The Cognition Crisis. It was sort of a, I posted online, it's available, sort of a little bit of a follow-up to the distracted mind. And really just expanding this notion of the fact that we as humans are, are, are really struggling when it comes to our minds, our, our ability to sustain our attention, which we've talked about, but also our sense of empathy and compassion and high-level decision-making. If, if anything, you know, just the last year of reading the news has really impressed upon me that the cognition crisis is, is in full effect right now. Mm. And I, I would hope that through these approaches that we've been talking about of sort of flipping, you know, the, flipping the sword around for technology, that we can achieve some of these higher order goals, not just fix ourselves when we're broken, but feel more empathy and, and, and be able to, you know, all of us sustain our attention better and make more informed, you know, future-facing decisions that don't just impact us. Because we're never going to deal with things like climate change, these things that require all of these capacities with just information alone. We already know what's happening to the climate and we could see what's going on. So that's my bigger wish is that this is not really just medicine. Yeah, that's really a crucial place to land here because it, our engagement with information is not just a matter of how it makes us feel and you know what it does to each of us personally to have attention split or to be in the end using our attention in ways that we will regret or find less than rewarding I mean, information is the only thing that is allowing us to form a coherent worldview mm-hmm. and fuse our cognitive horizons with other mm-hmm. people forming mm-hmm. the same worldview. And so our engagement with information and our inability, I mean, just taking you know, climate change as the problem you raised, I mean, our inability to converge on, you know, a basic acknowledgement of facts there as a society, to, to speak of America in particular, but, you know, this is true in, in many other places, just to agree on what the facts are and much less what we should do about them, Mm. that seems currently politically insurmountable. And Mm -hmm. it's based on so many of the things we've talked about here in large part. It's Mm -hmm. not to say that political disagreement and conspiracy thinking and obfuscation and ignorance are, are new variables, but they are clearly being amplified by technology in a way Mm -hmm. that is becoming unsustainable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're being dragged into a kind of matrix that's shattering our epistemology, you know, where we just can't agree about facts and it's making any common project very difficult to engage. And, you know, climate change is is one very salient example, but it's it's on every front. And so Mm -hmm. it's, we we do need to get a, a handle on this somehow in the near term. Yes. This is, this is really what, what inspires me now and, and the work that I'm doing and groups I advise for, even if it's not my own efforts, is really tackling that issue, which is a global one. It, and it's one that's really core to us as, as, human, as humans, which, is, which is, makes it exciting that it's 
you know, it's it's here. It it is it is in front of us. Like we are out of time to to delay evolving our minds and really really getting to the core of what's preventing us from from advancing. Because I think our survival, both as individuals and and as a species, really depends upon this. And I don't think that's overstated in in terms of of how dire this need is to to fix some of these poor iterative cycles that we've gotten in with information. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's information. We we have to be in control of it. We cannot allow it to just drag us along. And if we don't take control, it could go in all sorts of negative ways as as we're seeing. Well, Adam, it's fascinating and all too consequential. So um thank you for being here and, and thank you for doing the work you're doing. And I look forward to the next installment when the story shifts. However, Slightly, it's um, this is really the topic of our time, and uh, uh, it's just great to have you um, in an adjacent trench over there fighting the same battle. Yeah, I appreciate the time, Sam, to really tease apart some of these more nuanced and, and complex issues. That it's not that technology is good or bad, and uh, it takes time to go through them. So I, I appreciate it, and um, I'm really, really glad to talk with you and happy to engage again. <laughs> <laughs>